From our offices in Media City, Dubai, I'm John Lillywhite and this is the UAE Tech Podcast Expo Edition, a celebration of how technology is reshaping culture, economics and governance for the 21st century, brought to you by Albawaba Business. If you're interested in sponsoring the UAE Tech Podcast, tune in at the end of this episode for more information. you go in with say $20,000 worth of Ethereum and you start buying up all of these axes, I mean, it's usually a team of three. And then you, you know, you find online on YouTube or on these different forums, the best builds to breed with the best axes and you've got the money for it. You can build out the best team and then you can sponsor or give a scholarship to somebody else say in like Vietnam, who's heavy on axes, who's very strategy oriented and you earn money based on that. And in this case, it's always about, you know, whoever has the most money that is able to strategize with somebody else that knows how to play the game will always win. And in any case, we wanted to create a a system to where no matter how much money you were to put into Crypto Fight Club, like on the gaming side of it, you will not win. I do believe that, you know, NFT gaming is huge. Crypto gaming is huge because it opens up doors to a lot of different people around the world to earn income, you know, when places like Vietnam, Thailand, Bangladesh, uh, Myanmar, Laos, all of these countries are super big on crypto gaming because, you know, sorry if I'm not allowed to mention this, but the pandemic ruined a lot of these global economies and it took away a lot of jobs. So in result, a lot of people are going towards these crypto gaming aspects and earning more like two or three times their minimum wage to put food on their family's table. And, you know, uh, there's more people that have a phone than a bank account around the world. So it's easily accessible and anybody can get crypto. It's easily accessible as well. Some things harder than other. There are knowledge gaps and hurdles that people have to conquer. But in terms of the gaming side, I do think it's huge. Um, and I do think it'll evolve. But, you know, that's not what the world is all about. You know, that's also why we decided to take aim at the financial system as well by creating the pretty much transferable certificates of deposit on the blockchain via NFTs. And in this case, you know, it's something for everybody. It's not just about a crypto video game. You know, crypto was built to, you know, I've been around since 2015 and the people that were hanging out back then were all financial anarchists and they're yeah. trying to build yeah. this crypto revolution. And that stuck with me, man. Crypto Fight Club brings to mind a manic, spiky-haired Tyler Durden suddenly discovering crypto probably somewhere in Macau. No, this isn't a sequel to the cult classic Hollywood movie, although it probably should be. Instead, it's a video game, which aims to combine the allure of martial arts with the economics and incentive structures of crypto. Today, we're talking with Ashton Wolf, managing partner at Maho Wolf and project lead at Crypto Fight Club. Ashton grew up with games like Tekken, Mortal Kombat, and Soul Calibur, games which were designed purely for having fun during a time when in-game economics weren't possible. But today, in-game monetization isn't just possible, it's everywhere and massively popular. The free-to-earn gaming space is, for example, booming across Asia, and it's potentially making an appearance in AAA games across the United States and Europe later this year. Time will tell. But has something been lost? In the rush to build NFT-based game economies, are game designers forgetting about those little things like fun or skill? Do any of us want to play games where the player with the most ether wins? 
And can we trust these nascent gaming systems with our MetaMask wallets? Are they secure? Remember that in some ways these systems are the precursor to larger metaverse worlds, and some argue the future of cyberspace. As free-to-earn gaming becomes an on-ramp for mass crypto adoption, we talk with Ashton on esports in the UAE, the rise of Asia, as well as his own story, which begins with a Bitcoin ATM at a retail store somewhere in the United States. Today we're talking to Ashton Wolf of the Crypto Fight Club. Ashton, thanks for so much for joining us on the podcast. So what is the Crypto Fight Club? Thanks, John. Crypto Fight Club, well, it's a lot of things, man. Um, so Crypto Fight Club, the original ideology behind it, aside from the fighting style, um, more or less going into crypto's original ideology, you know, we truly believe in decentralization. And, you know, over the past year, not 2022, but 2021, we've seen a lot of hacks, exploits, rug pulls, and all of this. And a lot of them were mostly due to people holding money on centralized counterparties, staking products, um, exchanges, you know, there's, there's many different exploits that have happened over this year, especially with all of this new blood that has came in, you know, everybody's mother, sister and their dog came into crypto this year, especially through like meme coins like Dogecoin and, you know, baby Shiba Inu and all of this stuff, right. And it's ultimately these guys turning a blind eye to knowledge and learning about what crypto is all about. Everybody wants to get into their, you know, get a quick buck because they see the big pumps from all of this. I think there's, there's a couple of things you referenced there. you know, the idea of having fun, the idea that a lot of people are in this space and there's some kind of security issues and, and um, you know, incentive issues as to why are people doing this. And um, also the name jumps out of you, you know, Crypto Fight Club, you immediately kind of think about the movie um, and then you think about the kind of, you know, combining the movie Fight Club with the irreverence uh, of crypto. And it does kind of sound interesting. And of course, WWF, WWE, all that kind of stuff, super popular in the Middle East. But I was reading the website and you referenced Tekken, Mortal Kombat, Soul Calibur, the games of old. So what are you getting at with those references? Is this also about kind of having fun? and not just making money out of this stuff and competition. And I see you also referenced the importance of skill. Is that kind of a reference to the play to earn gaming space where a lot of, you know, there's this debate about, okay, we want to make money. We want to incentivize players, but we also have to remember why we're here. It's about having fun and enjoying video games. It is. And that's also why we went with the whole 3d eight bit style of gaming. It's bringing back that nostalgia. You know, I like to definitely compare it to a lot of different older games, you know, because, you know, back 20 years ago, a lot of people playing games were playing the games, you know, Tekken, Mortal Kombat, and so on. And yeah. now they've released a bunch of new stuff, but it's ultimately the same thing with better graphics. You know, it doesn't really have that same nostalgia uh, unless, yeah. you know, you hear the, the Mortal Kombat fatality theme um, or you're playing with the old school classic Ryu skin in Street Fighter. Mm. Um the main idea was to bring back this nostalgia through like 8-bit gaming while also creating this modern day gaming environment to where you're matchmaking with other people around the world and ultimately having the same fighting experience 
with all of these other people. Regarding the skill-based style, you know, if you're a noob and you go into Tekken, uh, online tournaments or anything, you know, and you go against a veteran, you know, the, within the game smashed. theory, yeah, yeah you're going to get mismatched and you're going to get wrecked. So mm. in Crypto Fight Club, the, ultimately the same thing will happen, except during the matchmaking process in PvP when it's released, it's going to be based on kind of like a win-loss ratio. So, you know, games like Call of Duty, right? So they've got like a ranking system based on your kill-death ratio, your KD ratio. So we're ultimately going to incorporate something very similar to Crypto Fight Club to where everybody has a very fair advantage playing against somebody who has never. And of course, you know, and if you go into tournaments and you don't have a, you know, there's always selected people who are going into these tournaments, you know, maybe you won't stand a chance. And it's mainly within the randomized matchmaking when tournaments aren't happening that you will only matchmake with somebody at your skill level. Because at the end of the day, the game theory is extremely important because, you know, we want to have the same experience for people that are just starting the game and then also for people that are veterans in the game and getting better. So yeah. in regards to the skill-based game, um, I would actually like to reference Pokemon in this case. Mm. So in, in the main game that's coming out in February or March, we plan on having this turn-based model where, you know, every 20 seconds it's timed, you know, you hit your turn, I use my turn, we have certain amounts of energy that we use per turn, and you have an array of buff cards that you would use. So you could lay down one card and that would buff your attack. You could lay down a defense card and it would buff your next incoming attack coming, you know, from the opposition. Or you could do something, you know, like a little Uno twist, you know, skip the other person's turn or, you know, take, a, take some energy away from the next person. Um, and the way that the fighters are designed, you know, the stats are equally comparable. They're pretty much based on a, a rarity level. So somebody that may own like a, a fighter that has a one of five rarity out of a series of 5,000, ultimately the person that has a very common card, you know, their stats are not gonna be as good, but they can size up depending on how they use their skills. So, and how they, you know, kind of play their turns and play their cards. And in, in this case, you know, in Pokemon, if you, you know, you got a level 40 Charizard and you're going into level 50 Gyarados, you can still, take that advantage if you use your, you know, your potions right, if you use your attack moves right. Um, and the idea, you know, it's an, we want to make it entirely skill-based for the PvP side. And then on the mini-game side, which is coming out uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll release more information on the 11th. Um, what people are going to do, it's very simple, quick, fast, easy way for people to go in and make money because attention spans are very low. And... Mm -hmm what the idea was is, you know, create these 45 second, 60 second games to where somebody can run around and capture a chicken and whoever captures most chickens inside of this little mini metaverse, you know, they reign, uh, you know, top dog for the rest of the day and they get the, uh, they get the payout. Um, and this will happen every 24 hours. And, you know, according to however many other people are playing, you know, it's all ranked on like a first place, second place, third level, and whoever has the most points will win. Um, that was ultimately inspired by how Muay Thai trainers uh, train up in local environments like in Isan, Thailand, which is up north. Mm. Mm. What they do for cardio practice is the farmers will unleash a bunch of chickens out of their cages and 
all the fighters will go around and try to capture as many chickens as they can. And these guys move fast, man. These yeah. guys move, you know, just as fast as these chickens. And there'll be a hundred chickens and five fighters. The idea is to go pick one up, put it back in his cage, run and go get the next. And they make competitions out of it. You know, whether it's who gets the the biggest meal of the day or, you know, who gets to skip out on bag work that day. Um, you know, it, it's mainly just building out that competitive edge to it. And when you have crypto involved, you know, people are going to start taking it seriously. And the idea to retain them is to have these fast paced games that anybody can get involved in easy to play. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I remember that the Mai Tai thing, there was a, there's a really weird documentary on it a couple of years ago in the UK about this um, English guy that um, went out to do this stuff. And I think, I'm not sure if it was Mai Tai actually, it might've been something similar um, possibly in Thailand. And um, he went somewhere super local where the, the, the trainers were just, completely hardcore and when he first turned up there they said he had you know he hasn't got a chance and he spent about a year and a half there and they were still absolutely you know destroying him by the end of the year and a half but he you know just physically and, and in terms of performance the documentary was kind of interesting because after a year and a half he was kind of one of the team even though he's still behind all the others and I guess what I'm getting at with that is you know me and you probably grew up with the same generation of games I love Soul Calibur I love Tekken um i love mortal Kombat. i don't mind getting beaten on those games which didn't happen very often but that's kind of fair i guess with the new generation of gaming what i worry about is going in and you know spending uh, kind of coming in at entry level spending quite a lot of time on it and then some guy you know coming in um, has more crypto than me buys up loads of you know power-ups and 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 um special kind of um, you know, whatever the game dynamics are, XP, experience points, whatever. And, you know, suddenly it becomes unfair. So, you know, you can go to the boxing ring or the Mai Tai ring and you know, as long as you train hard, you have as much of a chance as the other guy. But in the metaverse or in some of these games, you can train as hard as the other guy. But if he has the best armor, you know, or the best power up, you don't really have a chance. And I think what's interesting about talking to you is that you're not just talking about crypto and blockchain, you're talking about this design problem really and how to, to, to fuse the kind of crypto play to earn space with the fun of, you know, martial arts disciplines and, and the, the kind of original classic fight games. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of these pay to win games in the crypto space. Uh, Axie infinity is one of them, you know, in this case, you know, it's one of the top played games because people are making a bankroll. They're making a lot of money by playing this game. Mm. But if you go in with, say, $20,000 worth of Ethereum and you start buying up all of these axes, I mean, it's usually a team of three. And then, you you know, you find online on YouTube or on these different forums the best builds to breed with the best axes. And you've got the money for it. You can build out the best team. And then you can sponsor or give a scholarship to somebody else saying like Vietnam, who's heavy on Axie, who's very strategy oriented, and you earn money based on that. And in this case, it's always about, you know, whoever has the most money that is able to strategize with somebody else that knows how to play the game will always win. And in any case, we wanted to create a, a system to where no matter how much money you were to put into Crypto Fight Club, like in, on the gaming side of it, you will not win. You know, we, our first product that we released was a staking product. And mm -hmm. it has the same principle, you know, it's even if you have the most amount of money staked into your fighter, 
you're not going to take a majority of the pool. People are rewarded on the length. They're rewarded by delayed gratification, you know, similar to, uh, you know, a legacy time deposit or like a bank account, right? At a savings account, they want you to hold their money longer versus the size of it. So then it shows that they have this accreditation of assets under management to where they can go to the government and just start getting more money from other people or from the governments and just causing inflation. So in this case, you know, it's always the people who stick around the longest, the people who support the economy more by length are always going to be the winners. And, you know, it's, and it's the same thing with playing a game, man. And even training a, a sport, it's the more time you put into it and the more dedication that you have, the better you get and the better opportunity you have to win. Yeah. And I get why Pokemon kind of um, is a good kind of analogy for that. Uh, fun fact, I was recently reading that, that the kind of creators of um, the new Pokemon game originally worked on Google Earth. And, and before that, were kind of working on NASA satellite tech, which is kind of random. But, but yeah, Pokemon Go, the original guys who, who um, launched that were originally Google Earth team. And before that, they were working on satellite tech in the late, uh, from the 1970s on. So super interesting story I was not aware of. I can send you some something I've written on that at some point when it's published. Um, yeah, but yeah, that is it. definitely interesting. And it's kind of linking some of what you're saying to, into AR and that kind of stuff in the future. Um, but yeah, going back to, to kind of your last comment, you were talking about Axie Infinity. So how does Crypto Fight Club, um, you know, try and distinguish itself from Sandbox and Roblox and, and Axie Infinity? Do you think, you know, these three case studies are going to be around for the next five to 10 years? Or do you think, you know, entrepreneurs such as yourself are really thinking about the next challenge, which is to build these massive game economies um, that everyone can play on and everyone can enter in? but also to, you know, kind of retain the spirit of gaming and opening it up to a, a wider audience. So one of our advisors, he's a former Riot Games executive, and I learned a lot from him just about game theory and, mm. you know, player retention. And what he taught me is that you have to have a spot for everybody. You know, not everybody's going to enjoy PVP. A lot of other people enjoy PVE, player versus environment, the, the free roaming aspect to it and the, the environmental challenges that they can play and earn money doing as well. Um, a lot of people just like the fast paced games, you know, so we decided to create something for everybody in this case. So all of the mini games that we create in the future are built for the people who, you know, are taking the, the five minute bathroom breaks with their iPhones, because let's be honest, like a majority of the people in the world do it. You take yeah. your phone to the bathroom to either scroll on social media or to play clash of clans. Like this is, this is the world we live in. Um, and then you have the PVP side for the people who are more competitive and that want to move up in a ranking system and build out its reputation. And then you guys, you have the guys that just want to kind of like kick it and just, you know, play by themselves in their own free roam environments. Now, I do believe that, you know, NFT gaming is huge. Crypto gaming is huge because it opens up doors to a lot of different people around the world to earn income, you know, when, Places like Vietnam, Thailand, Bangladesh, uh, Myanmar, Laos, all yeah. of these countries are super big on crypto gaming because, you know, sorry if I'm not allowed to mention this, but the pandemic ruined a lot of these global economies yeah. and yeah. it took away a lot of jobs. So in result, a lot of people are going towards these crypto gaming aspects and earning more like two or three times their minimum wage to put food on their family's table. And, you know, 
there's more people that have a phone than a bank account around the world. So it's easily accessible and anybody can get crypto. It's easily accessible as well. Some things harder than other. There are knowledge gaps and hurdles that people have to conquer. But in terms of the gaming side, I do think it's huge. Um, and I do think it'll evolve. But, you know, that's not what the world is all about. You know, that's also why we decided to take aim at the financial system as well by creating the pretty much transferable certificates of deposit on the blockchain via NFTs. And in this case, you know, it's something for everybody. It's not just about a crypto video game. You know, crypto was built to, you know, I've been around since 2015 and the people that were hanging out back then were all financial anarchists and they're yeah. trying to build up yeah. this crypto revolution. And that stuck with me, man. The stance that, you know, we're taking a crypto fight club is to build something for everybody. You know, we have something that is mutually beneficial to everybody that's in it for the money, not the, you know, and I guess the tech, and then also to fuel the wave of the whole NFT gaming and making it autonomous, you know, like when it comes to a lot of the holdings and everything, like everything is dealt with by the smart contract. There is no middleman. And all of our contracts have been audited by the security company called Hacken. Everything from the smart contract of the token, the NFT smart contract, the gaming smart contract, the escrow smart contract, like all of this has been securely audited. And, you know, I'm not saying it's 100% safe because, you know, right. the world has hackers and, you know, people who have been audited have been hacked. It happens, but we're taking the extra measures to provide this, you know, this uh, lack for a better term incentive for people to join in and build that trust with the communities. And we just want to kind of build something for everybody that is falls in line with the true ideology of crypto, and that's decentralization. Got two two kind of groups now. You've got the big tech kind of um, uh, legacy uh, technology institutions, but you also have this kind of rising community that seems to be the game community fusing or merging with elements of the crypto and blockchain community, and and really that culture and that ideology is quite different to a lot of the the game companies and big tech companies we've had in the past. I don't know if that's something you see or not. Oh yeah. It's money, man. Um, it's all about money. So back when I like 10, 11 years ago, um, I was doing major league gaming tournaments through the, the tournament session, MLG for Call of Duty and Activision. And, you know, they're, they were raking in big money, but then paying out the tournament winners, you know, chump change. So then later on, a couple of years later, people were introduced into streaming and realized that that was a, a killer revenue stream. Now, with crypto gaming and, you know, NFTs being used as in-game items for a lot of these, you know, hot new games in the industry, big companies are not going to entertain this for a long, long time. You know, there's Activision's uh, Call of Duty Warzone, right? So they've got this battle pass and you unlock different skins to, you know, the, for your weapons, for your, you know, character and everything. And you're just able to like drip in all this cool swag that you pay real dollars in for call of duty points. And I've always thought to myself for the last couple of years, like, you know, why don't they introduce their own crypto? You know, they can, they can make money on marketplace fees instead of just trying to rake all this in themselves when they sponsor different players and streamers, they're not paying them out a lot of money, you know, like gaming is one of the largest industries in the world, especially mm -hmm. starting, you know, two years ago, more people are streaming now than ever and playing video games. So companies like Activision, Blizzard, you know, what they could do to support their players and even their content creators is, you know, monetizing, still monetizing with crypto, but, you know, 
slowly going in that direction, you know, allowing players to transfer skins for maybe even in-game currency that they have, even if it's not on the blockchain, like, you know, I paid $20 for the battle pass and I earned all of these skins for this season. And then somebody new might come along and really like that skin that I have. Why can't I just transfer it over to him for, you know, a couple extra call of duty points. And, you know, literally if you were just to incorporate all of these as NFTs, it'll take, you know, 15, 20 minutes, um, throw it on the Ethereum blockchain or, you know, something like Pulse Chain where the fees are extremely low, then what you're able to do is monetize based on marketplace, fee, marketplace fees and empower ownership for everybody. But they don't want to do that. It's all about, yeah. you know, it's so centralized and it's kind of disgusting. Um, I, I'm very controversial when it comes to the whole centralized counterparty and crypto gaming, most aspects. Um, but that's how they make their living. And they've got so much money to where, you know, I don't know, they're not going to lose money. You know, everybody's going to be fine that works there. Um, right. Yeah. And no, we adapting to new technology, new emerging technology. I wanted to ask a little bit about you, Ashton, because we haven't really spoken much about you. Um, sure. I read somewhere that you, you, put Bitcoin ATMs around North America and you've worked on developing uh, fintech uh, businesses, uh, you know, all over the world. So what about you? How did you get into the space? What's your story? How did you go from kind of bit, Bitcoin ATMs and top tier fintech into Crypto Fight Club? That's quite a colorful story. I'll try not to talk too much about it. Um, no, go ahead. So in 2015, I was working at a retail store. Um, and it, there was two locations and there was a Bitcoin ATM in each one. And back in 2015, the most amount of people that were using Bitcoins were prostitutes, drug dealers, back page pimps, like all that people. And when a lot of these people are using this, you know, there, there was always that negative connotation aside with or associated with Bitcoin. Like it's used for everything just mentioned, but it kept continuing to grow. And it was the analogy of, you know, uh, haters are your motivators in this case. So like, you know, there's that saying, there's no such thing as bad PR, but you know, of course there is. And in Bitcoin, it was not this case. Bitcoin has had the worst PR, but it just continued to grow in price and users and token holders. So that's what interested me the most, you know, the, the tech behind it, it took me a while to grasp it. But when I saw the amount of traffic going into these Bitcoin ATMs, as I'm working at this retail location, we have a lot of these people who are complaining. They're like, hey, I can't withdraw from this ATM or hey, the ATM ran out of Bitcoin or hey, there's no receipt paper. And I'm sitting over at my, uh, the secondary location. It was a bit smaller and I'm about to close up the shop and I see this guy walk in and there was just this funky energy from him. And he walks in and I just ask him straight up and I'm like, yo, do you own these Bitcoin ATMs? It was just a, a, an energy thing. I just, I just knew. And he's like laughing all giggly. I think he was stoned. And he was, he was like, yeah, that's me. I own them. And I started talking to him about it a little bit. And I was like, hey, you know, we get a lot of complaints. And I was just very forward. You know, I was tired of working retail. And I was like, I can do a better job than this guy does. And whoever your guy is that's doing it now. So he's like, cool, I'll take that risk. He's like, can you start tonight? And I'm like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And he's like, okay, meet me at this hotel at this time. And, you know, we'll sign some paperwork with my lawyer and, you know, we'll give you the keys to the ATM or the ATMs. And I was like, cool. And at the time it was about 
23 ATMs located across America itself, um, a couple in Argentina, two in Vietnam being built. Um, there was one in Amsterdam. And at that time I was like, cool, you know, I, I need to tell my boss that I need to give him my two weeks notice. And, you know, this guy at the time, you know, he meant a lot to me. He was helped me learn a lot of stuff about just work ethic and, and whatnot. So I ended up taking this risk by leaving my job and going with this one dude to, you know, learn Bitcoin and Bitcoin ATMs and stuff. And so after about, you know, two years of doing this, um, I ended up building out at the time, the largest Bitcoin ATM network in the world. I'd planted around 250 ATMs just in America alone. We had about 50 more located in Vietnam. The one in Amsterdam got stolen. Um, they were never like drilled to the floor. You could literally just walk in with a dolly and take them out. Uh, but these guys like threw a brick through the window, shattered the window, and then took a, uh, a dolly and just walked out with it. You know, good luck opening them, right? Um, so yeah, we. I think at the end of 2017 or mid 2017, when I had left, there was about anywhere between 250, 275 ATMs at the time. And what I had done was I learned a lot about like OTC transactions, you know, like going in, buying Bitcoin uh, from different people around the world, filling up the wallets throughout the ATM network, educating a lot of people about Bitcoin. You know, I uh, Emory University in Atlanta, it's like one of the top medical um, uh, universities in the country, if not the world. And I gave a whole presentation on Bitcoin to a lot of PhD and MD students there. You know, it was just learning about emerging tech. It was a, an event called Unveiling the Internet. And I did a lot of different like little roadshows like this. I did a couple in Austin, Texas um, at a bookstore. Um, I did one near like a Scientology museum near this one location that we had called Ty, How Are You? Um, so anyways, yeah, 2017, I did a lot of Bitcoin ATM stuff. And I really, that's how I got really introduced to the whole like financial anarchy stuff and Bitcoin maximalist wave. So after that, I decided to leave. Um, I just really wasn't with the current work conditions that I was put under. And there was one guy that I worked with, uh, his name was Will Pengman. And he was working with a marketing and PR. It was actually like a full stack marketing PR business development company focusing on ICOs, initial coin offerings. And those are just like fundraising events for people's shit coins. And when I, I like, I was really close to them. He ended up getting fired. And he's like, Hey, if you know, if you ever leave, you know, hit me up. You always got a job. So I hit him up after like three months of trying to learn to day trade and buy different altcoins and see what happens. And it just didn't work. You know, I lost money. And so I hit him up and he puts me onto this role as a, like a growth hacker. You know, I was young at the time, still considered pretty young. And I was just kind of with the wave, you know, I was, I knew how to build out hype. I knew how to get people connected. And through this company, um, I worked in, you know, the marketing sector through growth hacking. I moved into business development, doing sales and partnerships. Um, what else I did? I did a little bit of operation stuff and project management. And so that kind of gave me this sense of wanting to become a jack of all trades. You know, I want to learn a little bit about everything, but then always when I work on one thing at a time, try to master that. And I spent about three years doing that, uh, maybe about two years, 10 months. Um, and then I, that company ended up going under because it was a bear market and it later just resorted to a PR company. And, you know, 
long story short, it just kind of went under. That's another really funny story, but we're not going to talk about it. So <laughs> okay. um, I ended up hanging out with the, the founder, um, really, really close friend of mine. I, you know, he, I was working under his wing for three years. He taught me a whole lot just about how the world works and, you know, how to run proper businesses. So I was working with him and he introduced me to offshore banking. So for nine months, I was, you know, I got through the ATM company, I got AML and KYC certifications to where I was able to do compliance on documents, um, like corporate structures, um, you know, company documents, like article, articles of association, company incorporation documents, yeah. all that good stuff. And then, so when I was opening up uh, offshore bank accounts for different people, um, I learned a lot about how corporate structures work and how to set up corporate entities, you know, offshore entities and bank accounts and all that cool stuff. But, you know, I'm not really into the whole like white collar business line. So I, I wasn't interested in helping people move their money. And first off, you know, it was an offshore banking startup and I wasn't making a lot of money as most people that work at offshore banks would. So I ended up leaving that and I started my own company and my own company, it's called More Wolf. And what we ultimately do is marketing and PR. And at one point we did corporate services. So my partner, Felix, he worked in a, a law firm for about three years and learned a lot about, you know, company infrastructure, company incorporations, and also opened up bank accounts with me. So um, throughout that process, we had made a lot of connections with different offshore banks and we were offering the service as well, you know, company incorporations and a full suite of packages, right? So that really didn't work out that well, but the marketing and PR was money. And that's because we had our own twist to it. You know, a lot of people back in 2017, 2018 were paying for like Forbes articles. You could pay $2,000 and get a feature on Forbes. Dope. Yeah. Um, now, few, people, you know, few people realize this, by the way, but yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. And you can't do that. You, yeah, you might be able to do that now. You know, I know a couple of people that do, but it's not like, it's not $2,000 anymore. If you want to do it, it's like 30,000 and it's not even exactly. worth it. You know, you look right. at their articles yeah, and no it's like yeah. 500 to 2,500 views. Uh, I guess it's good for credibility, but it is what it is. So anyways, um, most PR companies, especially in crypto are going to try to scam you and be like, Hey, I can get you on market watch. Give me, you know, $2,000. And they end up giving you a press release, which, you know, they paid $75 for from some dude in the middle East. So this does not work because for one, it's not SEO friendly, doesn't index in Google. And, you know, you have to create the hype around it and you have to sell that to the people that don't know this. You have to format it like, hey, we got a market watch. This is really cool. But, you know, people who know, know. And now everybody knows. If you want to put on your website, we've been seen on Yahoo, Business Insider, and you put all of those press releases, you're just going to, you're going to backfire. It's not, it doesn't work that way, right? Um, so we decided to take our own twist to it. And what we do is, you know, we, we used to populate pages on Google, you know, we've got a, a bunch of different media partners and like crypto entrepreneurial niche media outlets, and we would index people's names on Google. And we would also get them that cool little fancy schmancy, uh, panel on the right-hand side that people with like Wikipedia pages have. It's called a Google knowledge panel. And we would get that and it would establish so much credibility for somebody, especially during the pandemic when everybody was doing these online meetings and whatnot, you would 
ultimately Google the person that's trying to do business with you. And if they had nothing with their name, similar to myself, you know, I'm a very behind the scenes person, but if you had somebody, you know, trying to do business with you and you, you realize they had nothing to them, you know, you're not going to want to further that, you know, that conversation. However, if they have that Google knowledge panel and those articles with their names headlined in it, they're like, oh, this is a person worth doing business with. They've got a lot of LinkedIn connections. Like that's what's up. So instead they also like to, you know, try to you know, forward business anyways. So we do a lot of that, but my favorite thing about the business is we publish opinion editorials. So opinion editorials are these non-promotional articles that come from interviews or, you know, transcriptions from other interviews or, you know, events that people had. And typically it's very opinionated um, and it's insightful and engaging. Now, uh, my favorite part is it's not promotional. You know, a lot of people want to be like, hey, you know, get me on Forbes. I want to talk about why my coin is so great. It's like, well, it's not. You're just like everybody else in crypto. You know, you're talking about how you're talking just like everybody else that wants to think that their project is so great, but you don't even have a product yet. You know, you want to get this credibility that you don't deserve. And what we do is, you know, in a nutshell, we, we brand out identities through opinion editorials and it, and it gives a lot of solidity to somebody's name and it builds a really positive rapport because they're almost framed as like a thought leader. Like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. And if you go to uh, like the opinion section on like Wall Street Journal, Cointelegraph, Coindesk, whatever, and you see that that person's not an editor or a journalist there, they're an executive or a, a developer at these, at these companies, the person that's reading that is actually going to do their digging if they find that article insightful or if they took something away from it because they want to learn more about what they're actually doing. So that's ultimately what I resorted to. Um, now, Felix, he's a very technical individual. Um, about eight, not, no, now 10 months ago, we decided to open up a blockchain development arm with our currently developer, Mark and Felix. And what we were doing is we were building out MetaMask wallet authentication systems to where whenever you go to somebody's website or, you know, you would have that MetaMask plugin to, you know, confirm and transact and verify. So let's say NFTs, for example, you know, we were minting people's NFTs for them. We were kind of guiding them on the best blockchain to do it. It was most scalable for their pocket and especially based on the community that they wanted to build. So they would, or they would end up building out this infrastructure to where people would be able to interact with their NFTs on that actual website. Um, and interact with their, their crypto wallet, whether they're holding NFTs or they wanted to use their crypto to buy an NFT or verify its authenticity, um, all that stuff. And then with that, uh, we decided to kind of take it the extra mile and create our own product line. Because um, we have all the resources, we have all the knowledge, you know, we have the vision, so why not? So we partnered up with, for marketing at first, uh, a company called GameStarter. They're a IDO, IGO launchpad for crypto. So it's mainly like a, a platform where a bunch of games come in and they go in and raise money. And that's just how they're doing their fundraising. And they support a lot of different games coming in. So what we did in this case, you know, at first it was like marketing. We were publishing articles under the founder's name. And we decided to, you know, kind of present them an idea. And we're like, hey, you know, what do you think about like a fighting game called Crypto Fight Club? You know, Felix and I train at this one gym and, you know, we think that 
we could turn this into a game. You know, we were inspired by, again, like the, the older games from the 90s and early 2000s. And we want to, and we have got the designers and animators to ultimately build out something really, really cool with these 3D voxel, you know, 8-bit characters. And yeah, they helped us a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, a couple of things within game development, marketing, especially just getting our foot off, out, out the door. Um, and then that's pretty much how Crypto Fight Club was birthed. You know, it all started with an idea to where, hey, you know, here's a five-minute elevator pitch. We're just kind of spitballing here. Um, what do you think about this game? And that's, that's how it started. And then what intrigued me the most was the financial aspect of it. You know, like I played a lot of video games. I was a professional gamer way back in the day, but I'm, I know that that's not like a lifetime thing. People will grow out of the crypto fight club gaming, just like they grew out of call of duty or they grew out of Mario Kart or Pokemon. Like we want something that's going to benefit people's lives. And Crypto is something that does that. The financial system within crypto in certain product lines has done this. Uh, whether it's made people rich and alleviated a lot of stress, um, that's great. You know, money doesn't buy happiness. It's a proven fact. I think there's like a stat in this book, uh, like this scientific book or academic book just about the science of happiness. And it states, if you make and you consciously know that you will make annually $73,000 a year, Anything more than that will not make you happier. It will not spike your dopamine, like winning the lottery. You know, that happiness is very temporary. So when you have something that is actually long lived, that is there to benefit you and possibly the, your children and the people beneath you, then present that to them. Like I have people coming to me every single day saying, this is a great product for me, but it's also a great product for my kid too, because not only do I have fight tokens staked inside my NFT and I'm earning buku interest, but I'm letting my kid play this game chasing chickens around or I'm going to let him play when it releases. And he's going to be making money for me. He's going to love this game. He's going to play it, you know, as many times as he can. And I'm going to be making money off of it. Like that's, you got the best of both worlds right there. And that, yeah, that's pretty much the ideology behind it all, you know, and also really, really, really honing down on not your keys, not your coins. It's a battle against centralization. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a there's a good story at a conference here. Um, one guy I was saying figure out how to lengthen that one of these days, but I no, there's a there was a good winding story. And you know what? Um, I mean, what was I was also thinking was, you know, you were talking about the ATMs, you were talking about the work with uh, offshore companies, and you're talking about the gaming, and it's kind of interesting in that other other individuals that we've spoken to on this series. They've, they've taken different routes. Everyone we've spoken to has taken a very different route kind of into whatever they're working on. I mean, increasingly, it's a lot of blockchain stuff, but they often do seem to have some kind of serendipitous experience in, in either law, in some kind of finance, be it DeFi or any form of finance. And then there the tends to be something in gaming or VR or in, in fintech or in, in one of those kind of creative industries as well. So there's elements of your story that kind of compare in an interesting way to some other speakers we've had on the show. Um, and there was also an interesting story, I, I was going to say, at a conference here where some guy was saying, you know, he was in Australia and, uh, you know, Australia's had a pretty tough time with the lockdown and um, they finally got to go and see some family. And I think his son hadn't seen... Um, his sister daughter they've never met but they were about two or three years old 
And he said the weirdest thing was they both sat down and started playing Roblox. And he wasn't sure whether to be pissed off because, you know, he thought they should be out playing football or, you know, doing something that kids should do. And instead that, you know, this new generation was sitting down playing Roblox. And he was like, on the one hand, I wasn't sure what to think about it. On the other hand, that was just how they both connected, you know, without even, it was just automatic. It was natural. Um, now I'm not sure I'd send my kids down the digital mines and be like, Hey kids, <laughs> you know, let, let's make some profit while you guys are playing. I'm not sure that would be the, the best pitch. The <laughs> should, yeah, right. I'm not sure that one would go down well with the, um, you know, but, but it was kind of an interesting story. Um, and it also made me realize, you know, that my experience growing up with kind of, you know, Game Boy and then NES and then the Mega Drive and all that is, is, is in a way different to, to what the kids, to what kids are growing up with now. And they'll probably understand these economies and these worlds that they can manipulate um, much more, you know, that their, their ecosystem is slightly different. On that, I wanted to ask you a bit about kind of the world outside the United States and, and outside of Europe. Um, I know once or twice I've seen some um, stuff you guys have worked on that's referenced the Asian market. Um, I know you're interested or in, in the scene out in the UAE. So just to kind of finish up today, what do you think is, is interesting about what's going on in the UAE? Because you've got a lot of the crypto and the blockchain community out here. More broadly, um, what do you think the role of, you know, you've, you've talked about Vietnam, Bangladesh, and India, these countries. Do you think kind of Asia is going to play a really big role in, in gaming worlds and metaverse worlds going forward more generally? That was the grandfather clock. I don't know if you heard it. I, I, yeah, that, I'm sorry to our listeners for Ashton's grandfather clock. Um, we do normally send an email of things to avoid. Uh, and it's quite a long list at this point. Grandfather clock has, is not on the current list, but it will be added. <laughs> um, so outside of US and Europe, we're going to talk about UAE and Asia. Um, the way that I look at it, especially for the crypto and gaming. Um, Vietnam is hot. Like Vietnam, uh, they did... I believe the guys that made Tencent Gaming, uh, the, like the biggest, one of the biggest gaming corporations, um, you know, they, they're really into adapting a lot of like emerging tech and whatnot. Um, and because they're such a big gaming nation, they've harnessed crypto gaming like nobody else. Like, you know, they were some of the first movers in starting these crypto guilds through, you know, Axie Infinity and Theta Arena. Um, you know, these people, like, this is their career, you know, not only were they playing video games before you could earn money with them. Um, I mean, they were playing in tournaments, you know, they've got some of the biggest or the most hackers just in that small little region than anywhere else in the world, because they just like to manipulate it. They do that for fun. And with crypto gaming, because you can't really, you know, manipulate a blockchain, you know, they've been, they've been, you know, poised in a position to use their gaming skills to really hone down and actually earn some real money. So Vietnam in particular is extremely hot. Um, I, I really like what they're doing with play to earn gaming. There's a lot of different companies coming out with a lot of these really cool games that adapt to the current environment of not only Vietnam, but just Southeast Asia. Um, we all know Japan is really big on gaming, you know, like uh, what is it, Banco, the ones that guy, the guys that make Dragon Ball Z or Bandai. 
Um, and they make a bunch of diff different other games. Um, but all in all, I mean, the, the industry is huge, especially in Southeast Asia uh, and other, you know, places that have developing countries. Uh, China, not so much. You know, this is like the 11th time they've banned crypto. And half the time, it's always a good thing. Every time they ban it, it makes new all-time highs. Um, but aside from, you know, the rest of Asia, I think that it's extremely beneficial, especially with the whole lockdown period, people staying at home and trying to figure out ways to monetize their time. There is no better way than crypto gaming and it's been proven. It's a killer use case for the industry and it's a great, it's a great mover, uh, you know, for like mass adoption, you know, for people who don't necessarily understand the tech of crypto, they don't need to if they have an easy game that they know how to adapt to. If they grew up playing video games, they could easily adapt to playing a video game versus if they grew up playing video games and they want to stake crypto, it's that knowledge gap is extremely hard to jump over. Now in UAE, you guys are a bit all over the place. Um, very diverse, I would say, but you know, in the right direction, hundred um, percent. You know, Dubai hosts some of the biggest conferences in the world uh, for crypto alone. You know, you had the Dubai blockchain week that happened October last year, 2021. And they do a lot of really cool, fun events. Dubai is a really fun place, you know, trying to be the best at everything or have the most expensive stuff. Um, and, you know, people who made a lot of money on crypto go to Dubai to experience all of this and host these events and these, these gatherings. And with, you know, there was a, this is right when I launched Crypto Fight Club or just announced it, but they had this, uh, um, I guess it was regulated. It might've been unregulated, but you had two of these crypto Twitter guys, uh, Rookie XPT and LoomDart. Uh, they met together during the blockchain week and they organized this boxing match because you know people like Jake Paul are making it such a, a big sport and a big name in the industry to where everybody can get into it. You know, if you're a YouTuber, TikToker, Twitch streamer, you know, you can box, sure. It's an easy sport for anybody to learn. It takes a lot of hard work, but it's a sport that anybody can learn and become good at. So these guys decided to kind of make this entertainment scheme and be like, hey, you know, let's uh, let's box each other for the sake of crypto Twitter, raise some money. I, I think they raised some money for a charity uh, via like the ticketing and whatnot. Um, but Dubai totally blew it out of the water in, in a good way. You know, like that being the place to where they held it in such an extravagant venue, they had, you know, all of the resources they need to make this event pop off. Um, I, I, I think it, it is extremely popular over there in more ways than just, you know, setting up events. You know, there's a lot of big emerging companies that come out of UAE just for FinTech alone. We haven't seen much out of gaming, but you know, that's okay. It's not really necessarily for every region. Um, the reason that gaming is so big in Southeast Asia or just Asia in general, is because people, game for a living like this is just what they do like console gaming in asia in southeast asia alone like PUBG had most of the servers uh being held up in vietnam because that's where most of the players are playing vietnam philippines indonesia um but yeah all in all i mean the oh, thanks that yeah that, i mean that was an interesting analysis that was an interesting overview um and it's good sometimes to to listen to someone outside of the UAE kind of reflect on, on where they see the UAE um, globally and, and within Asia as well. And I think a lot of what you said. Um, I like the hype about, of crypto. Yeah, yeah. And it's true what you said about the gaming as well. I mean, the UAE, I think that 
I think there's discussions happening here that that might be the next step. You know, it might be about inviting game developers here and it might be about finding longer time ways to uh, encourage the gaming industry because, you know, the, the, there's very good blockchain uh, experience here. A lot of it um, from the United States and Eastern Europe. There's a lot of crypto guys, as you said, particularly during COVID-19. It, it felt like at times the world crypto industry was here. And by that, I don't just mean the United States. I mean, you know, the US, Eastern Europe, Asia as well. Um, but I, I think what that, I could see happening in the UAE what? and Middle East and everything. Because events are so popular there, you know, you could, so sports betting in general is like 80% of the sports economy, any sport, football, fighting, all of it, right? So streamers, people sponsor streamers and they bet on streamers all the time in different gaming competitions. That is the ultimate place to host, you know, the ultimate gaming competition to where you have the hype men that have the best venues and the best support and the best resources to support big events like this. Because if, you know, you're going into gaming, you have people like Fresh, Nick Merckx, um, you know, Courage, all of these big time streamers, Ninja. And, you know, if they're in UAE, not only does that bring a lot of credibility to the UAE hosting these events with all these big names, but there's also a lot of money. You know, the, the fights that happen in, in UAE, like, man, there's so much money that goes behind these fighters and just like sports bets. Like gambling is yeah. huge there. I mean, gam double. So, so it's interesting. Um, and you, you know, I have to be a little bit careful on, on the gambling thing, but, but WWE yeah. is, is very, very popular here. Wrestling is very popular here, not just here, but in Saudi Arabia, Jordan, around the middle East, it's, it's just culturally very po popular, much more possible, much more popular than I've seen in the UK or Europe actually. And in, in regard to what you just said about events and esports, 100%. So, you know, my point was, okay, bringing game developers out here, but actually what I think uh, members of the business community are actually thinking about is trying to make uh, elements of the UAE an esports hub. And obviously, you know, yeah. connecting that into the fight, the streaming um, and, and the crypto community. And I think that, you know, even this year, that might happen in quite a big way. Hint, hint, um, not suggesting anything at the moment, but I, I'm pretty sure that people in the community here are really thinking about that. Definitely, hundred um, percent. Yeah, and it, and it, you're right. It does make sense because because you know conferences and, and events in Dubai do work, and it's becoming a hub um, for all these different communities. Um, so Ashton, listen, we've gone a little bit over time, but thank you so much for joining the UAE Tech Podcast today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Sponsor information. The UAE Tech Podcast is distributed by Albuaba Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on Albuaba Business, syndication distribution on Albuaba Syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Albuaba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.